Hi, I'm Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise, and welcome to Series 3 of Enterprising Mindset, Minding Your Money. We'll be exploring the often overlooked role that mindset plays in building financial capability and the significant benefits to be gained from understanding the impact of our attitudes, beliefs, and values have on our behaviours around money. I'm hoping we'll discover new ways to help young people build a money-related mindset and also explore the contribution that this could have in increasing social mobility in the future. My guest today is Amy Alam, who is the Executive Director of Financial Times' brand new charity, Flick. Amy's a charity leader with over 11 years' experience spanning service design, project leadership, and operations management. Amy joins the FT's new charity from her previous role as the Program Director of the Economic Research Council. Amy's worked at the NHS, victim support and in community development running projects in the diverse London borough where she grew up and still lives. Welcome to Minding Your Money, Amy. Thank you, Sharon. Thanks for a lovely introduction. Well, it's fantastic. You've done a lot of stuff. Um, So I'm really keen to explore money mindset with you today and the work in particular of the brand new charity. Very exciting. Uh, Your mission's such a brilliant one. I read that. To make learning to manage your money to become as common as learning to ride a bicycle, which is fantastic. And it's so important, isn't it? Because we know our mindset around money is often informed by our early experiences of the world. Research tells us that money habits and behaviours stick with us for life at the age of uh, seven. So my first question is a personal one and one that I ask uh, all of our guests, and that is who and what were your early memorable influences that informed your attitude and mindset around money? It would definitely have to be my dad. Um, And I think uh, having an immigrant parent, one early memory that I know is extremely common and lots of people share is shopping in markets and bulk buying. Um, This is something that my father took great pride in and he continued it long after there was any sort of economic necessity to do this. Um, For years, I didn't know that rice came in dinky little 500 gram bags. I thought it was sort of 10 kilos and up. (laughs) It's something that I've really proudly inherited, much to the detriment of our cupboard space uh, and annoyance of my partner. Um, But uh, always buying sort of regularly consumed items in the most cost effective manner. So I think sort of frugality in terms of shopping for staples at home is something I definitely recall. But there was a flip side to this, which also sort of happened at home, quite a somewhat counterintuitive, which is the sort of generosity and extravagance that would be on display if we ever sort of hosted or entertained people. Right. Um, So hospitality is a hugely important part of Arabic culture. And it was something that had to be provided for, regardless of how healthy the bank balance was. And in what ways do you think that those early influences have stuck with you with regards to your emotional relationship with money as an adult? Yeah, I think I definitely still feel the pressure to entertain as generously as possible. Um, And I really struggle to refuse guests anything. (laughs) And do you still like shopping in markets? When I get time, it is one of those things that it requires time, doesn't it? Um, That's why supermarkets can charge us more for things is because it's because that's all in conveniently one location. Um, I do try to go as often as I can. um, And certainly it is better for sort of certain items, right? Fresh foods. Um, I think I certainly harbour a almost pathological love for buying in bulk. Um, I always half joke to my husband that my main financial aim in life is to have enough room for a large chest freezer that will accommodate all my special offers and batch cooking meals. Brilliant. (laughs) Let's kind of have a look at the new charity from the FT. I know that the FT have been passionate about campaigning for increased financial literacy and inclusion for a long time. 
So tell us a little bit about what led up to the creation of the charity and perhaps a little bit about who your priorities are to help and what you aim to do. Quite right this weekend, we launched the Financial Times Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, which is an independent charity. And it really came about because the staff at the FT wanted to do something more ambitious than their annual seasonal appeal where they would help a third party charity. Um, they've raised you know, over £19 million in the last 14 years. Um, and it's something that they want to do sort of more ambitiously and more specific uh, in, a, in a cause that will resonate with FT readers, but one that I think resonates beyond just the readership. Um, so the Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign, which we're calling FT Flick for short, has three main target groups. Uh, so three main three main target areas. So the first is that all young people get access to the basic building blocks of managing their own money, something that we all agree is a vital life skill. Um, the second target group is women. Uh, we know from lots of research, uh, women are far more hesitant about finance and need tailored help. Um, and then the third is what we call marginalised communities. And that's going to include anybody who struggles to access services. So be that because of bank and post office branch closures or because of complex financial language. Uh, really, we want to help empower all three of those groups to sort of make positive decisions about their financial lives and, and generally improve their financial well-being. So it's a really broad church. Yeah, it is. And it's great to see you have very clear priority groups to support. I mean, obviously, they're going to be very different barriers experienced by those different groups. What do you feel they are and, and how are you going to approach building a financial inclusion in response to, the, to the, those different needs, I guess? I think for young people, we want two things. One, we want to make sure that this learning is enshrined in national curriculum, that everybody accesses those, as I mentioned before, the very basic building blocks, budgeting, um, what the, the sort of basics of borrowing are um, in managing their money. Secondly, we want to make sure that anybody who wants it can access more um, additional sort of free informative content where they're most comfortable learning. So likely that's going to be on social media in easily digestible chunks. So we want to make make available, you know, how to start a business for young people. Um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're producing sort of as much accessible resources as possible. For women, we know that the barrier is really confidence. There is a gender gap in terms of financial literacy. Women appear to know less than men, but confidence accounts for a third of this. I think there's a study that if you take away the don't know option, women know a lot more than they think they did. And does that go back to confidence, do you think? Absolutely, it comes back down to confidence. So we think one of the best ways to remedy this might well be training up women to speak to other women about their experiences taking greater control of their finances. Now, we don't think we're going to send in you know, a wealthy female banker into a, a low-income community. It's really got to be about community champions, people from their own income brackets speaking to uh, their peers about the tangible benefits of improving financial literacy. And I think when people, I don't know about you, Sharon, but when, when I see somebody like me who's done something, it makes it seem more feasible. So I think we see our sort of role in the future as, as helping empower the women. that and, and also another thing is whenever you do meet somebody who's learned these skills, they want to talk about it because they know the benefits that come with it. Um, for marginalised communities, we are still in a stage where we know that we need to listen carefully before acting. So we want to find out what communities need and build the approach from the bottom up. Uh, and that's going to be by working with organisations who are already embedded and already working with 
beneficiaries that we want to reach and seeing how we can help. And we know that one size certainly doesn't fit all. So very much a learning exercise in the first year for us. I know that a key aim of Flick is to partner with existing financial charities, other organisations in financial education, which is great because there's already a lot of really impactful work taking place in financial education. Do you actually see a role for Flick in amplifying what is already working well out there? Oh, 100%. Um, There is such excellent work out there and we've absolutely no desire to reinvent the wheel. What we do know is that whatever is out there, it's unfortunately not enough. So we want to make sure that we are finding how we can help. Uh, There are great organisations, yourselves included at Young Enterprise, doing this type of work, and we want to see how we can help them, whether that's tapping into our experience in terms of engaging audiences or using our platform to spread existing work more widely. Um, But I think particularly where the marginalised communities are concerned, there are a lot of people doing this type of work or wanting to do this type of work in really cash-strapped community groups, frontline organisations, For these individuals, we want to see how we can resource them um, and help amplify their voices. So whether that's providing content, improving their confidence in delivering this kind of work, or even just uh, redirecting some of those resources, making sure that we're there to, whether it's to provide the room to do it in or um, the volunteer to to deliver the training, we want to see how we can help. And we're really going to be led by frontline practitioners on that front. So what I'm hearing is this first year is very much about listening and engaging and finding out what those differing needs are for for, for different communities. Absolutely. And there's been such a heartening response already. We've had lots and lots of organisations get in touch and say that we're crying out for this type of work. You know, we've got 200 young people that visit us in this part of Skegness or wherever. Please, can you keep us in the loop and let us know what we can start to deliver? So I think there's there's very much going to be listening, but also there's a great deal of appetite out there. So I think we'll be able to move pretty swiftly once we know the shape of things. And if people listening today want to get involved, excited and want to support the new charity, how can they go about doing that? We know that there's so much sympathy out there for our mission. I think there's nothing more appealing it's a great than, mission, by the way. <laughs> than teaching people to fish. Um, so the response so far has been, as I mentioned, just so encouraging. Um, so we really want people to visit our website, ftflick.com, uh, and they can get in touch in a number of ways there. So it's either to volunteer their time or to point us in the direction of an organisation that might be able to help or might be able to benefit from what we're doing or to donate or even better, all of the above. Brilliant. So just remind us again of the of the website. It's FT, as in Financial Times, and Flick, like the word without the K, so that's Financial Literacy and Inclusion Campaign.com. Now we can't have a conversation about money mindsets without referencing the pandemic. And we and we know of course that the pandemic has in many ways sped up digital developments at a time when it's more important that people understand critical concepts that impact their lives, such as interest rates, inflation, and making links between their own financial activity and credit scores. I'm really interested, how are Flick planning to learn more about how digital disadvantage impacts the different groups that you're wanting to support in order then to respond to those different needs? Absolutely. I think it's a really important question. Um, I mean, just anecdotally, getting our own new charity set up while many bank branches were closed was a technological odyssey. It was something we recognised would exclude so many people 
we also, I suppose we also have to recognize that it, it benefits lots of people. Technology is, it can be liberatory, right? And, and for lots of people, it will make things a lot more accessible. But for those left behind and at the sharp end of the digital divide, this comes back to the sort of listening that we were talking about before. There are some wonderful organizations, particularly age-related charities and providers within government who have been researching this area. Um, and we will sort of we'll very much be looking to work with them to understand better the needs of those groups. Um, one of the conversations that I had was talking about, you know, for all this talk of accessibility on social media and making things on YouTube, actually what benefits some people is having a fridge magnet that it explains uh, you know, what a fraudulent call sounds like or what questions they should be asking. Um, and so I think that that's, uh, that's something we're really looking to be led by those on the front line for, but very much an important area and something that we want to prioritise. I mean, that's just so practical in terms of being able to respond to those different needs. I mean, I, I, that's just so relevant to me. My my mum has been the victim of a fraud. Now that was due to a, to a phone call that she took. Now there's just no way that she would be accessing any guidance from social media and a fridge magnet there would be something that she could trust as well. I mean, there's just, there's ways and means, aren't there, to engage with different generations. So, and again, you can't also make assumptions about generations. So it is really about listening, isn't it, to the different needs of of those stakeholders. Yeah, certainly. Different things for different people. Um, that's what we're going to have to deliver. And I think that we've got the benefit, I think, you know, starting afresh um, with a new organisation, a new independent charity is always daunting. But one of the benefits is that we can sort of really look at what's out there and map our work accordingly um, and think about we've got a, a level of freedom there to sort of say, okay, right, this is what we think these people need. Let's test it and see if it see if it works. And you're very much in that kind of culture of test and learn, test and learn. We don't want to do anything without measuring whether it's working. Um, and I think that's very much sort of the case across all charities these days. But we need to we need to make sure that what we're doing is having not just the immediate impact that we want it to. So that's testing, you know, people's knowledge before we do an intervention after we do it, but whether that knowledge lasts and whether it has the desired outcome on sort of wider aspects of their lives. So for example, when we went up to Manchester and did a pilot with some young people teaching them in fact about fraud and financial risks, we tested their knowledge before, we tested their knowledge after the workshop, and we're going to test it again uh, as schools open again, just to see if they can still remember it. And we need to be able to be responsive to all of that information and really listen to, to the data and what the data is showing. Yeah. And I guess as well, it's it's providing those opportunities to then embed that knowledge into behaviours, which then they can carry out and uh, on a long-term basis, isn't it? Because knowledge is one thing, but actually then having the behaviours embedded, uh, I just think that makes it, makes it more of a sustainable intervention, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think that um, financial literacy is one of those things that has uh, ripple effects far beyond just people's money management thinking about the sort of benefits of becoming more financially literate. It's not just about you know, not getting into trouble. People who manage their money better report higher self-esteem, greater assertiveness, and even better sleep. I mean, who wouldn't want those things? There's very little out there in, in terms of research uh, linking financial capability with social mobility, for instance. And at Young Enterprise, we believe there is a definitely a link to explore further. I'm just wondering what your views are on the contribution that financial capability could make to social mobility. 
I agree that there is an absence of research into this area, and I look forward to uh, FT Flick digging into it more. Um, and I certainly think that we intuitively know, uh, without doubt, those who lack financial literacy will very much struggle to improve their lot in life. But I think it's equally, if not more important, that we don't just make all of the responsibility and the solutions to this uh, about the individual and that we target some of the structural impediments to social mobility that exist, um, whether that's sort of extremely low wages where companies are often subsidized by in-work benefits, um, the poverty premium, you know, the fact that getting your gas and electric on the meter uh, ends up costing a lot more than those who have adequately good credit to be billed for it on a monthly basis. Um, but I think most importantly, it's the profound effect of over a decade of austerity uh, on services like adult learning centres, where people can really sort of improve their skills and employability, as well as the removal of uh, education maintenance allowance, uh, EMA, which is a really good example of a way that young people used to learn to manage a regular income really early on, and that's now gone. So I think... Yes, individuals do need to take responsibility and, and that there are definite benefits when no matter your income of managing it better. But I think there are some structural things to address there as well. And, I'm, and that's really what the C in uh, financial literacy and inclusion campaign is for. I look forward to, I, to getting stuck in. I was going to ask you that. Do you, do you see the role of, of, of Flick actually to highlight some of these kind of infrastructure issues that are contributing to an ecosystem that is not working for so many people. Absolutely. I think that it's uh, it's a view that's shared by lots of people. You can you can sort of manage your money as well as possible, but when the system isn't working for you or when there's I mean we we've just about brought uh, unscrupulous payday lenders under control, but uh, there are still other things to tackle on that front. I think that yeah, the structural side of it can really instill a hopelessness in people mm. and that's something that we really got to work to target. That's really it's really interesting that kind of link between the individual, the community and the kind of wider ecosystem. They are inextricably linked, aren't they? What do you feel the key enablers are that that being financially capable brings and and, and how do you think that does impact on on an individual's quality of life? Absolutely. I think really at the core of it um Obviously, what I mentioned before, lacking financial literacy very much uh, makes things worse for everybody across the board, regardless of income. But on the positive side, improvements in financial literacy, learning to manage your money better, knowing what's available to you and how to utilise it, having just the, the toolbox to know which questions to ask. These are the skills that make our ambitions in life possible, whether that's young people who are bursting with creativity, wanting to start businesses or to monetize whatever uh, creative output they've got, um, they need to know how to make that happen. Um, whether it's, a, it's women wanting to make sure that they're adequately prepared for retirement and aren't going to fall behind their male peers in terms of later life wealth. Improved financial literacy can make all of those things more feasible um, in a aspirational way, not just um, uh, helping people sort of avoid the traps that exist that we've touched on before. I couldn't agree more. It's a great point. We're, we're nearly at the end of the conversation, but I have a couple of questions from young people, if I may. They are great questions. The first one is, what are you most tempted by when it comes to our spending splash out? 
<laughs> um, so I really like experiences. So I really like travel and restaurants. Um, and I can, if I'm honest, be a little impulsive on holiday, but I'm generally oh. happy to tighten my belt elsewhere to make this happen. So I, I'm, you know, I do love to try new things in restaurants and to, to have that, that extra dessert or whatever it is. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah, so that's Brilliant. my that's my guilty pleasure, I think. Um, but as long as you're sort of checking your checking your numbers every month and making sure it all tots up, then it's uh, I think it's okay. <laughs> and that leads nicely to the second question: What are your top tips for saving? Um, I think this was a really interesting question. I think there's some really good, and it had me thinking a little around technology. There are some really good tools out there. Um, I know that one of the uh, banks that I have, um, they allow you a function to round up your pennies on all your purchases and for that to go into a separate pot, which uh, I think if you've got access to tools like that, that's really mindless. Um, You've got to sort of opt out of it. uh, And otherwise, yeah, I think it's a good way to sort of just uh, put put away a little tiny bit each each time you spend. Um, Similarly, uh, everyone's hero, Martin Lewis, um, he's got a great demotivator tool where you can put in how much you're spending on something each day or each week um, to tot up how much that's. And that that for me was really, really valuable many, a decade ago when I gave up smoking, I was able to put in how much money that was costing each, each week. And it was really that sum total of what it would cost in a year that really hit home for me. So I think knowing what you're saving, uh, knowing how much you're saving, but also really visualizing what you're saving for and making sure that you're sort of committed to that and behind it. So whether that's for a deposit for a house, really just sort of reminding yourself and imagining yourself in it, <laughs> I think can really yeah. help. Um, and that goes back I, to mindset as well, doesn't it? You know, just absolutely. really visualizing the house yeah. and having that on your phone. And uh, mm-hmm. it is about that kind of moving towards something, isn't it? Rather than like you were saying before, having to stop something. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of the calendar on your phone as well. Um, Mm. So just putting in a little reminder when I have a big holiday coming up or something that I would like to be a little more flush for, then I make sure I put a weekly reminder, usually on a Friday afternoon when I'm about to go out for the weekend. And and it's a good way of just sort of reminding yourself, yes, you could have have a good time this weekend or you could have a really good time when you're off on holes. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So you know your kind of temptation points, so you kind of plug them in then. Yeah. And I also think, um, and this one comes with some caveats, this tip. Um, So obviously making sure that similar to when you go to the gym, having an accountability buddy. So somebody who holds you to account, I think can be really, really helpful. But the big caveat with this, and it's super important with money, is that that's subject to a a trusting, clear relationship. Um, I think, you know, we all know people who've been financially exploited and it's a very serious business. So I don't want anybody to save with anybody else or um or let anybody else boss them around about money if and unless it's something entirely uh, agreed upon and uh and, and within sort of the, the boundaries of respect and trust um but i think it can be a very powerful motivator uh to have somebody who says right you said you were putting away 20 quid a week have you done that show me your account balance like that <laughs> so somebody you trust and you can yeah. share your goals with and they keep you accountable absolutely absolutely Amy, sadly, we've come to the end of our time together. Before we go, can I just take an opportunity to wish you all the very best with the new charity, uh, Flick? It's very exciting. We're looking forward to working with you at Young Enterprising Young Money uh, alongside other financial education partners. 
keen to build that financial education ecosystem that's embedded early on in children and young people's lives. Sharon, thank you so much for having me. It's been a wonderful conversation. So thanks to Amy for joining us on Enterprising Mindsets, Minding Your Money. To hear more interviews like this and also to access series one and two, please do subscribe to Enterprising Mindsets on your favourite podcast service and we'd really love it if you'd leave a review. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.